So good morning for any of you just joining us uh, online as well. I'm Joel. I'm so grateful, privileged to be able to share the Word of God with you today. Today we come to Luke 17, verses 11 to 19, and really a favorite story that you'll find in all the Gospels. To help us lean into our text, I want you to imagine you woke up this morning in a dungeon on death row. For how long? You have no idea. You lost track of the days years ago. Maybe it's been decades. And you're wearing the same filthy clothes that you wore when you first arrived. They must be rags by now. It's hard to tell. The dungeon is so dark that you're in. You can't see. But you can smell. You can always smell the reeking sewage of this cell that you've been in. And you smell, no, take it back, you stink. And you can hear the drip, drip, drip from the ceiling onto the slimy floor. And suddenly you hear a new sound. Heavy footsteps coming down the stair steps. And now the lock is rattling as you hear a key in it and then click. The door swings open, fresh air comes into the room, and you hear a gruff voice say, Get up! You're free! Your ransom's been paid! The guard leads you out the door and waves you towards a set of stairs, and you see a light at the top. You wonder to yourself, when's the last time I saw daylight? And you turn, you gasp, and you say, I'm free? My ransom's been paid? What was the price? And the guard says, your rescuer offered himself in your place, his own death for your life. You turn in surprise and you say, when will this take place? The guard mutters, it's already been done. Why do you think I'm here? Get a move on. Stunned, you climb your way up towards the light. But as you're standing there on the brink of freedom, about to walk out in the warm sunshine, you have to turn and you have to beg the guard, please, one more question. How did he die? The guard looks you right in the eye and he says, shamefully, he was slowly slaughtered. And then he slams the door. And you're left to stand there blinking in the sunshine you haven't seen in how long. Friend, let me ask you, how will you respond to such an amazing gift? What will you do with your newfound freedom? Let's look at God's word. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 11 to 19. Now hear the word of our God. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, They were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, 
turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well, or perhaps better, your faith has saved you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and our need is great, our time is short. I pray that we might find ourselves like this Samaritan at the feet of Jesus, giving you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I confess I grow ever more aware of his providence, God's providence, his sovereignty over all things, his handprints over our world and my life. Our new song of the month, which I did not choose, calls us to praise God for his mercy. And today's text, which I did not choose, calls us to praise God for his mercy. Anybody excited that God wants to reveal to you his mercy today? We're walking through Luke's gospel, passage by passage. I don't pick it. It's just whatever happens to be next. And Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decided to include this story about nine men who received mercy from the Lord Jesus and one man who discovers that Jesus is the divine mercy and gives thanks to God for it. One man discovers that Jesus is the mercy of God and he falls down at Jesus' feet and gives God glory. Now, this mercy focus may help a few of us who have the particularly good memories, take copious notes. You're starting to think, hmm, Luke, why are you including this story? Luke, we know from February last year that Jesus has the power to cure lepers. You told us this way back in chapter 5. But now you're seeing mercy was not the focus there, was it? The focus was actually on Jesus' power and his grace. The chapter 5 leper, he came up to Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Lord Jesus said, I will be clean. And he touched the man. And we were amazed by Jesus' amazing grace and his power. But here in Luke 17, the lepers stand at a distance and beg for mercy. Do You see, Luke is revealing something more to us about who Jesus is and also our own condition. Luke, who happens to be a doctor, is showing us that Jesus is more than just an amazing doctor because otherwise we might conclude, well, now I know what to do anytime that I'm sick or others are or there's a surgery coming up. We call on Dr. Jesus. Now, friends, that is good, and you should do that. I hope you do that. But you're not seeing Jesus very well if that is the main reason you come to him. That's the problem with the nine who don't come back. Now, it's okay if that's where you're at right now. If you're on a continuing journey of discipleship, that's okay. But it's my hope that today we're going to discover the greater mercy that this one leper sees and that we'll start making regular return visits to the good doctor. I know it seems like maybe 10 years ago. Did anybody recall how Luke's gospel began? It began 
with multiple songs of God's mercy. Multiple songs of God's mercy. The Virgin Mary sang of God's mercy. You find it a couple times in her song. Elizabeth's neighbors and her, they're rejoicing over God's mercy. And then Zechariah bursts out in song after he hasn't talked for so long, talking about how God has revealed his mercy, how the tender mercies of God have been revealed. All this was in chapter 1. Here's the surprise. After opening in the major key of mercy, we don't see that word again until chapter 10. Jesus tells a parable about a man attacked by robbers and left to die on the side of the road, and nobody will stop to help this poor dying man. Why not? Well, it will be too costly to their persons until a Samaritan sees this man, tends to his wounds, picks him up, puts him on his mule, takes him to an inn. He cares for him. He saves his life at great personal cost to himself. And then Jesus asked that question, so who is the neighbor to this dying man? And the answer was, the correct answer was, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy. And now we see what mercy is, according to Luke. It is costly service to those doomed to die. That is what mercy is for Luke. Now, why did Luke wait nine chapters to flesh this out when he introduced it back in chapter one? Well, he was holding off until Jesus told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. That took place at the end of chapter nine. In Luke nine, the mission of God is going gangbusters. The crowds are coming. The disciples have just discovered that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says, oh, let me tell you what the Christ has come to do. I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. That's the Christ's mission. It's a mission of mercy to save those doomed to die. He's come as the suffering servant who will bear his people's sins, who by his stripes we will all be healed. Luke 9.51, I keep coming back to this. It is the starting gun of Jesus' one-way journey to Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face like flint. He's on a one-way journey to his death. And Luke writes in today's text, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. This verse, verse 11, is more than just the way he's introducing a new scene. In the Greek, eight of the first nine words are the identical structure of Luke 9.51. This repetition is a signal that we're approaching the last leg of Jesus' race, his journey to the cross. And as the cross begins to loom larger, so does mercy, the mercy prophesied back in chapter 1. It's getting expanded and blown up. It comes into full view. Samaritan outcast, back in chapter 10, was the first one in Luke's gospel who got what mercy was, the next mercy event also includes a Samaritan who understands God's mercy in Jesus Christ, unlike nine others. Verse 12, and as he, Jesus, entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This word master, it's the only time used in any of the Gospels. And last week, Jesus told the story about a master who had a servant. And the punchline of that story was, even if this servant did all that was commanded him, he was still unworthy, had only done his duty. 
You see how Luke has teed us up here so that we'll stay on the green in this text? There's no chapter 5 request, if you will. This isn't about grace. You have 10 guys who to a man are saying, Jesus, Master, we are unworthy servants. Have mercy on us. They know Jesus has the power. Will Jesus have the pity? They have a horrible disease that has no cure. It's called Hansen's disease today. It's almost eradicated just a few places in the world. Leprosy is this disease that destroys your nerves. It's a bacteria so that you can't feel anything. You might think, well, that's not so bad to have a disease that does the opposite of causing any pain. Actually, the physical trauma is awful. The mental, the emotional trauma is far worse. You see, it gets into your bones and it causes your digits to begin to recede. Your face begins to contort so that it looks like a lion. And you can't feel that your body's hurting anytime at all. So what happens, you end up destroying yourself because you don't know how to tend to injuries. You don't even feel them. Every, every injury actually builds upon itself. Infections happen frequently. That's why so many people with leprosy end up with amputations. And then think about what happens because you're cast away from the community. Leprosy isolates you from all your family, all your loved ones, everyone. That's why you have these guys standing at a distance. They are quarantined from the community. Leviticus 13 commanded them to tear their clothes and to cry out unclean anytime they go out in public. They were viewed as those cursed by God. They were called the living dead. Moses prayed to God that the leprosy would leave his sister, that she would not be as one dead. Remember, she disobeyed God and she was cursed with leprosy. She was viewed as one dead by that community. By the time of Jesus' day, Rabbinical teachings had brought further condemnation. You were not even allowed to greet a leper. They're required to stay four cubits away, which, by the way, is six feet. Uh, social distancing, yeah, back in that day. But they were permanently social distanced. You get in the scene here? You have ten men who are dying, who are isolated from their families and from God. And this, I think, explains why you have this mixed multitude. There's actually... One Samaritan, at least, among them. This ought to catch our attention because Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They're enemies of one another. Read John 4. So why are all these guys together as one, crying out in unity to Jesus? Misery. Misery loves company, as Soul Asylum used to sing. But unlike that band that says, we'll create the cure for our disease, these fellows in Luke seven know they're, 17 know there's no cure in them for their disease. Their shared state of misery. This brought former enemies together. Because think about it. If you and I are both in the gutter, we're wasting away, we have zero going for us, when we only have one blanket to share and maybe one can of beans to last us the day, we gladly come together. The stuff that we folks of cultured society like to bicker about, that all goes away. One reason why an apprehension of our misery apart from God's mercy is so important to the church. It unites us in ways that matter ultimately. 
We dare not isolate, as so many churches have, little factions, little cliques over politics, masking guns, any of that. Because we have much bigger matters on the agenda. And one of them is praying for God's mercy. Praying for God's mercy. J.C. Ryle writes, Why are true believers' prayers often so feeble, wandering, and lukewarm? Their sense of need is not as deep as it should be. They are not truly alive to their own weakness and helplessness, and so they do not cry out fervently for mercy and grace. So let's you and I make a practice of praying fervently for mercy. Because wonderfully, and one thing I want us to catch here, in fact, you never find anywhere in the gospel where Jesus is approached and someone asks for him for mercy and he says, no, I won't give it. Jesus always gives mercy to anyone who comes and asks truly in desperation. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, Jesus' response may surprise us. Unlike Luke 5, where he healed the man with a touch, Jesus actually continues to social distance them and says, hey, you guys go to the priests. Jesus told the previous leper to go to the priest after he healed them. See what he's doing? This is a call. They came to him in faith to exercise that faith in obedience by going while they're still unhealed. As an aside, I think this can help us understand how Jesus works differently in the lives of different people. Can you imagine the conversation of one of these ten who are healed, who maybe approached the, the first guy who got healed by Jesus? Hi, cousin Jacob told me, cousin Jacob told me that you were the first guy ever healed of leprosy by Dr. Jesus. Why, yes, I am the Luke 5 guy. And let me tell you about the moment when Jesus laid his hands on me felt like lightning went through my whole body. It was great. I heard about your recent cleansing. What was it like when he touched you? Oh, no. Dr. Jesus doesn't do that touch thing anymore. Leprosy treatment has come a long way since your day. You know, there's been better procedures, much advancement. What do you mean? No, Jesus has to touch you to cure you. No, no, no. Friends, Jesus works differently in the lives of believers. He does what he needs to, to cure us as he sees fit. Some of us are radically changed in a minute. Others, it comes over the course of a lifetime as we gradually walk and step out in obedience to what God is calling us to do. But I digress. There's actually a more significant matter here. Why does Jesus send them to the priests? First, Jesus is having them do what was commanded in Leviticus. Jesus has not come to abolish the law. More, and this is the more important thing, he has sent them to discover the gospel. What do you mean, Joel? He is reminding them that the law is powerless to save you. It can only condemn you. The law can only condemn you. You see, they'd already been to the priests. That was why they were in isolation. That's why they were in quarantine. That's why they were cut off from the community of faith. The priests had looked at them in light of what the law said. And whether they gave the verdict indifferently or with tears in their eyes, it was always bad news. My friend, you have leprosy. You are cut off from the people of God, from his presence. You must become an outcast. 
Never once did a person come to the law and find the cure here in the law. That's the problem. God's holy standard, it condemns us all, not just lepers. We're all infected with sin that actually desensitizes us to the original righteousness we once had, the holiness that we were supposed to embody. It actually causes us to destroy ourselves. Do you see the connection between leprosy and sin? And Jesus sends us to the law because the law tells the truth on us. We see the mirror of who we are in light of what we're commanded to be. It tells the truth on us. The law never eases my conscience. It says, Joel, you are unclean. You have not lived the way you should have this week. You are separated from God and unable to draw near to his holiness. These ten are sent to what they know is powerless to save them. So, if they get there and arrive, and the verdict is, oh my goodness, Joe, you are clean. Bob, you're cured of your leprosy. (laughs) It's not the power of the law that did it. It is the power of the Savior who sent me here to cleanse me of my disease. These ten step out in faith and obedience. And that's what they discover. This is one of those scenes that I would just love to see. Can you imagine 10 horrific, awful-looking lepers on their way? And suddenly, a remarkable celebration breaks out as, Hey, Bill, you got an ear. You got an ear. I see you got an ear. What What are you talking about, Bob? Your arm's growing back. Can you imagine what's going on here as they're looking at one another? Men with stumps suddenly are raising their hands and praising God and wiggling their fingers. Man, suddenly experiencing restoration from the top of your head all the way to the tip of your toes. After doing a happy dance, can you imagine? They're on a race to go see those priests. These guys, they're going to get their old lives back. The priests are going to stamp the approval. They get to walk in to worship God in the temple. They get to hug their wives and children they haven't seen forever. This is going to be glorious. They're off in a cloud of dust. But not one man. One man pauses. He's not so eager to have his old life back. He recalls how chills went up and down his spine when he heard the kind voice of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson in his Lent devotional talks about the picture, a picture he's seen of the broadest, most cheery smile he's ever seen in his life. And it's a man who's an amputee of leprosy. And a friend of his had done surgery on him in the Middle East. And the friend said, and Sinclair asked, why is this man so happy? And Sinclair Ferguson heard his friend tell him, this man said to me, I am so glad that I had leprosy because it brought me to Jesus Christ. He's not actually the first man with that testimony. We see right here, this man, this former leper, heard the compassion of Jesus. No one had ever loved him like this. And he begins from the direction of his old life that he could return to, towards the new one, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This Samaritan saw the others were running the wrong way. 
and he turned back. Why did he turn back? He got his healing. That was what he came for. He saw that he needed something more. He saw something more in the healing. In fact, he saw he needed more than the healing. He needed the healer. He needed Christ. And he returns to Jesus, and he does this in a really big way. He's praising God with a loud voice. The Greek here is megalos phoneo. I think it translates to English nicely, doesn't it? He comes praising God with a megaphone. And he takes up a worship posture at Jesus' feet and gives him thanks. And here's the thing Jesus wants us to see. The other nine are going to the priests to be restored so they can worship God in the temple. But this guy saw in the healing the proper place to now worship God. The place to worship God now is at the feet of Jesus Christ. This Samaritan gets what the Samaritan woman did in John 4. Two worshipers of God will no longer worship on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans were or in the temple in Jerusalem. Because when the word became flesh, Jesus became the place on earth where God dwelt. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Only one of the 10 who reached out to Jesus ever came back to thank him. Try to imagine the expression on Jesus' face when he asked this question, where are the nine? It's one of the sadder things about being a pastor. When I'm in my office, visitors regularly pop in asking for help. I get weekly phone calls from folks who I've never met. I think we probably have about a 10% rate of Thanksgiving from folks that we help here. But let's focus on ourselves. Are we thankful? R.C. Sproul writes, If I were to ask you, what is your most base sin, your worst action of evil, would you come up with something like failure to be grateful to God? Probably not. But according to Scripture, that is our fundamental problem. We think God owes us everything we receive and much more. I'm convicted. R.C. is right. In Romans 1, Paul says that our fundamental problem right at the get-go is that we live in God's world. There's signs of his goodness everywhere, but we fail to honor God or give thanks to him. Giving thanks to God is a repeated command over and over again in Scripture. It's one thing to be grateful. I'm sure the nine were grateful. And they spent the rest of their lives telling everybody, oh, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did for me. It's another thing to get on the megaphone and give thanks to Jesus regularly. When you pray, do you spend as much time thanking God as you do asking him for help? I think this can kind of diagnose where we might be tilted. Nancy Leiden Moss says, be thankful God has commanded it for our good and for his glory. God's command to be thankful is not the threatening demand of a tyrant. Rather, it is the invitation of a lifetime, the opportunity to draw near to him 
at any moment of the day. That's good. The nine, why did they reject this opportunity? Well, they're like Israel for so many generations. The whole Testament shows this. From this point on, we're going to find the rug has been pulled out from under Israel. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for Judgment Day himself, but Judgment Day is going to fall on Israel shortly after. From this point on, in Luke's Gospel, we're only going to see those on the margins receiving mercy. By the way, mercy is going to be blowing up. Chapter 18, you have a tax collector begging for mercy and receiving justification. You're going to have a blind beggar begging for mercy and receiving it from Jesus. And here we have this Samaritan who understood, I am far from God. I am unable to approach Jesus. I have two strikes against me. I'm not only a leper, but I'm a Samaritan. The moment he experienced the answer to his prayer for mercy, oh, something clicked. And he saw he had received an amazing gift. He saw that he was set free from his prison. He was out in the light. And he chose to respond with faith or with thanks. And he wanted, did not want to live any longer a life far from God. He wanted to spend the rest of his life worshiping at the feet of his Savior. He's looking up at Jesus' sorrowful face because the nine did not do the same. Was no one found to return, Jesus says, and give praise to God except this foreigner. Another way of putting it is, why are none of the Jews drawing near and giving praise to God? God had set his love on Israel, freed them from slavery, blessed them like no other nation on earth. But they only wanted the gifts and not the giver. Jesus is saddened because he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Let me ask you a question I think is good to meditate on. Do you realize that your response to Jesus' mercy can cause Jesus' happiness to rise or to fall. We may know that we're probably hurting Jesus, causing him sorrow by our refusal to receive his mercy. But did you know that you can increase Jesus' joy by your willingness to accept it? Have you ever thought about that? Dane Ortland gives the illustration of a compassionate doctor who goes deep into the jungle to help a primitive people who are afflicted with a contagious disease they're dying of. This doctor flies in all the medical equipment. He determines and develops the proper antibiotic to heal them all. By the way, he's independently wealthy and he's seeking no compensation. He's doing this because he cares. And he comes to their camp where they're sick, where they're dying, and he holds out this cure to them. And all the natives refuse to come. They prefer to heal themselves on their own terms. Can you imagine his heart hurting as they refuse? But what happens at that moment when a few brave souls step forward to receive the cure? How do you think the doctor feels at that moment? Pure joy. He is delighted. That's why he's came, so that he can heal them, so that he can bring the cure. And that is how Jesus feels as he looks at this brave Samaritan who came back to him. Verse 19, and he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Or better, has saved you. This is actually the Greek word sozo. 
Same thing Jesus says to the sinful woman back in Luke 7.50 and the coming chapter, Zacchaeus, when he says salvation has come to this house. Jesus delights in seeing this man not only cured of his physical need, but this man has come to saving faith in his person and received the mercy from God that Jesus came to give. Do you see Jesus smiling? Does this man's response demonstrate saving faith? And Jesus now tells him to rise. And by the way, this is resurrection language. This is new birth speech, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. And he commands him literally, he just says, journey. Jesus may be sending him on his way, but it's equally possible that he's inviting him to journey with the doctor as he continues to go out and seek to cure people. Either way, this return trip means there's no longer any distance between him and Jesus. They are now intimately bound together, unlike those nine. You see the tragedy of this story? The nine began at a distance, far from Jesus, then experienced his amazing mercy, and the story ends with them where? Far from Jesus. And it didn't have to be. Jesus wanted them to abandon all and return to him to discover more mercy. Friend, are you far from Jesus? What would you need to do to find yourself at his feet? To bring joy to Jesus. Victor and I can help you if you want to talk with us later. A few points of application. The first... Let's pray to the Father constantly, bringing all your needs to him. Ours is necessarily a need love because we are creatures, and he is a creator with infinite resources. He's our Father. What would you think of a 12-year-old girl who said she had a father, but she never, ever talked to him? You would say, little girl, you have a father in theory only. Let's be going to our Father all the time. Talk to your father regularly. We sang earlier about our father's tender mercies. Bring all your concerns. The father has infinite resources to bless you, and he smiles when you bring him everything when you pour out your heart to him. Second, let us live as those who've been saved by faith and respond in obedience to whatever Christ commands us to do with zero fear of the law. I think too often we try to pay our Jesus tax by giving him partial obedience. Maybe we'll put him higher on the list and we'll do some things, but we want the rest of our lives for ourselves. That's the tax we pay, and then we end up feeling guilty because uh, the old self, uh, he, he got too much of my life. Friends, we have an advantage that the Samaritan didn't have. After Jesus went into heaven, Pentecost Sunday came, and the Spirit was poured out which first means uh, we're living in the last days of a dying world. That means this old life isn't going to last. But secondly, the Spirit is the one who draws us to Christ so we can die to our old life and we can collapse into Him and live for Him. Our new life is in Christ. You know the Spirit supernaturalizes you so that you can obey Him. You can obey. I've said this before. If you're a Christian believer, you're the most powerful person on the planet, despite what anybody thinks of you, because you have the Almighty God dwelling inside you. And the Spirit is infinitely more powerful than your greatest sin problem. Infinitely more powerful. 
And I'll add, the Spirit opens your eyes to Jesus Christ more and more that you might give thanks to Him for all He's done. This causes us to fall at Jesus' feet and thank Him. Think about it. Jesus, the creator of this entire cosmos, He's holding Andromeda in one hand, and He's meeting with us at Heart City Church here in 2022, this little tiny former bank building. And He's letting you know that I became the leper on that cross. I became distanced from the Father so that you might be able to draw near to Him as His child. So let us this week be quick to be thankful. If we don't train ourselves to be quick, quick with our thanksgiving, we won't usually thank Him at all. That's how it works. Let me close by saying, today's sermon point is not a legalistic, be more prayerful, be more obedient, and be more thankful. That's not the gospel. The point is to remember who you are or who you were. Remember who you were until Jesus in mercy healed you, made you whole, and the rest will follow. I want to thank all of you who prayed for Patty, my mother-in-law. Patty right now is at home watching with her foot propped up. Hi, Patty. It's been a back and forth visits to the doctor for some time. We're doing all we can to get this wound on her foot healed so we don't have to amputate her leg. Seeing that picture of the return trip to the doctor, <laughs> knowing that Christ wants to heal you. You know, he never tires of seeing his patients. We all need to be his patients, and he has infinite resources to help you. And I want you to think of the remarkable thing, that you are now part of his body. You're his bride. Jesus united himself when he came to earth. And as your husband, in the same way Patty nourishes and cherishes her foot right now, Jesus Christ nourishes and cherishes his flesh, his body, which is us. So know that as you're receiving healing and comfort from Jesus Christ, as you come to him, because you're connected, Jesus is comforted. Jesus is appreciating that. Think of it in the reverse. And let us fall at the feet of Jesus more and more this week. And praise God that we have the privilege of blessing the one who has blessed us with every heavenly blessing in the spiritual places. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this? That we should be called your children, and such we are. Father, will you help us to see that our old life, the one we're prone to run to, is not worth living for. That, in fact, the only way we can live our lives correctly here on earth is by abandoning all and collapsing at the feet of Jesus and finding our all in him. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will lay your hands on each and every one of us, that we may be healed and saved. And we pray that you'll fill us with your spirit, that we may be bold in our witness, that we may show forth our faith by obedience to your word. And Lord, if there be any here who are still finding themselves far from Jesus, may they hear his voice calling them to come, to come, all you who are weak and lowly, and I'll give you rest. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.